One cannot read the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians without noticing that Paul has a deep affection for this church. He starts his letter by telling them that he always thanks God for them. He repeatedly appeals to them as his brothers. And toward the end of chapter 4, he calls himself their father while referring to them as beloved children. These words aren't mere flattery. Paul really loved these people. But that doesn't mean his relationship with them was always a smooth one. At times, the behavior of the Corinthians caused deep sorrow to the apostle. This was largely due to their failure to break from the sinful attitudes of the world around them. Like the culture they lived in, the Corinthian church could be obsessed with status. They could be divisive in their relationships, and they were often lax when it came to sexual sin. In a previous letter, Paul had tried to deal with this last issue, telling them they should strive for purity as the people of God. But apparently these words had fallen on deaf ears. Not only were they allowing sexual sin in the church, many of them were proud of their so-called freedom to engage in such things. Paul is outraged when he hears of this. And in chapter 5, he tells them that for the sake of the body, they must deal with this sin. The question is, how should they go about doing this? Why don't you uh, go ahead and take out your Bibles and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you don't have one, there should be one right in front of you, or you can follow along in the screen. And uh, as you're doing that, uh, if you received uh, one of these cards as you're walking in, this is just says it's time on the front of it, and this is a card describing something that we talked about a little bit longer in our services last Sunday, a building campaign that we are beginning here just as we speak in these next few weeks and then on through the rest of the spring. But if you have questions about that, if you want to find out more information, you can find any staff member here. You can go to the website. You can talk to uh, many of us and we can help you understand what its time is all about and what it means. So my name is Drew Henderson. I work with the student ministry here at Sunnybrook and uh, enjoy the opportunity every now and again to come in here and share with you guys from the Word of God, and that is exactly what we're going to do this morning. So I want to read just this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and that's just 13 verses. So we will go ahead and, and begin that. Paul says, it's actually reported that there, are, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus... You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. 
And I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. A couple weeks ago, uh, Jim contacted me and asked if I wanted to share on 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I said, sure, that's not a problem at all. And so I start looking through my Bible, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, 4, chapter 5. What's going on in chapter 5? Right at the beginning, we have a man that's involved in an inappropriate sexual relationship with his stepmother. Seems to be one of these issues like, now what are we going to do with this? Where, where do we even begin here? First thing that we have to understand is this is a church that Paul loved, a church that Paul was very well connected to. He went there at the beginning as he was starting his missionary journeys, Acts 18 and 19. He preached the gospel, established the gospel. The church was established. He was there for about a year and a half, loved the people, came to know the people, cared for them, and then he moves on, goes to a different region, preaching the gospel, and then he hears back of stuff that's going on in the church that they're struggling in sin. And because of his heart, the heart of a pastor, he writes back to them, helping them walk through all these different issues, responding to their different needs. You read at the very beginning of the book, the first few chapters, talking about division. They're fighting about who's gonna be their leader. He encourages them to stay united in Christ. You move forward to chapter seven. He talks about what it means to live in Christ-centered relationships, whether you're married or you're single. And in chapter six, he deals with, in general, the whole idea of sexual immorality. And what do you do with that? Well, you, you flee that. That would be his challenge to the church. And then we come to chapters like this, 1 Corinthians chapter five, where Paul, he begins to take a completely different tone altogether. He takes a, a stern and very serious tone with the church. And Paul hears this report, says in verse one that this man is in an ongoing relationship. It says that he literally has his father's wife. This doesn't mean that it's a one-time event, but this is continuing in sexual sin. We see in verse one, that's what it's all about. And it's not repented of, and it's continued, and it's continued, and it's continued. And we think, we hear these stories, and we look back in time, we think, wow, that that sounds shocking. That, that, that sounds like something that would not happen today. And we look back at these cities and we think, well, that was Corinth. This was a, this was a city that was on the, 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 like a port city where people were in and out all of the time. There were all sorts of different things going on. People uh, were there without their husbands and wives. There was a temple there to Aphrodite, a thousand temple prostitutes. And it was where the idea, the whole phrase, the Corinthian girl came from. I'm sure there were a lot of Corinthian guys, by the way. 
describing any sexually promiscuous woman. This is where it came from, was from Corinth. And look, I realize that we live in a different time and a different place with different needs and struggles than, than Paul did, but the more that I live life in the church and the more that I see the influence and the effect of sin and unrepentant sin, not just in the lives of individual believers and individual people, but how it affects the rest of the church, I really think that Paul's world and our world, there's a lot more overlap than we would like to think. Look on the screen, there's gonna be about four different things that are listed here. Thinking about uh, this city and who they were, and had these Greek ideals. The first one was individualism. The second one, equality. And the third, freedom. The fourth, no authority. Does that describe Corinth? Or does that describe them? Or does that describe us today? But we see situations like this and we think, but still a man in an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother, not here in Oklahoma, maybe one of the coasts, maybe Las Vegas, maybe somewhere like that, but not here in Stillwater. How many times have you heard that phrase? How many times have you said that phrase? Have I said those words? Not here in Stillwater. Now that, that couldn't happen here. I was talking to a friend of mine that's a college professor and he works mainly with college students, Christian college students. And he was just telling me just kind of the different struggles that many students had. And he said, since 2009, and I'll never forget, he referenced that year. And I thought, what was it that got just really popular in 2009? 2007, 8, 9, what, what happened? And he said, since that year, we have seen, I'll, I'll never forget what he said. He described it with one word, a tsunami that has affected our young men and women in pornography. And we're just beginning to see all of the different things that are, that are going on with this. We know that we've seen all these different studies that it affects the brains and it changes us and it has the potential to completely rewire the way that we think about all of these things and it has the potential to cause people to do crazy, sinful things. And what's worse is that when it comes to sin in the church and unrepentant sin in the church is that it, it's just, it has the ability these days to go more underground than it used to. And I don't know about you, but this might age me a little bit. I grew up in the 1980s, and that might be a blessing, you might think. It might be a curse, but that's when it was. And I can remember at the time, uh, not to really glory in this, but in just kind of a crazy way, sin was, didn't really have the ability to, to like be forced underground. It, it was just out there, and we had to deal with it. Uh, remember even going to movies, going to PG movies, right? In a PG movie, just in case you don't show your kids this, just so you know, PG movies used to be like almost R-rated, okay? And I remember going to the movies with my parents and then seeing these movies like, wow, this is crazy. We shouldn't be here. And so you were almost forced to deal with the reality of what was going on. You could, it wasn't forced underground. Ask your parents, how did you know that we had a party at our house? Well, there were 20 cars in front of the house, they were all cars like 16-year-olds would drive and the neighbors just happened to call us on the, that's exactly how we found out. That's how we knew. It was out in the open and wrong and sinful, yet we had this, this ability to kind of deal with it. But now because of the internet, it's been driven underground. It's just a video. It just disappeared. It's just a picture. It, it disappeared. It's gone driven underground, and it seems like in the, in the church even, we don't know how to deal with this. No one knows where to go for help. 
And I would say that because there is more, more similarities than there are differences, there is more overlap between our world and, and Paul's world, especially when it comes to unrepentant sin in the church that we really need to take the next few minutes and walk through 1 Corinthians chapter five and answer a, a two, two very important questions. They're gonna be on the screen. First question is this, talking about church discipline and the situation with the man. Is it, how is it that Paul would have, ha, would have us deal with serious unrepentant sin in the church? Then the second question is, how do we know that sin has reached such a level that discipline on behalf of the church actually needs to take place? And so let's begin to answer that first question. How does the church deal with serious and unrepentant sin that exists within the church? If you look at the first section there in chapter five, the first five verses, Paul really challenges the church to identify the sin and the people that are involved in this specific sin and begin the process of separating them from the rest of the body, separating them from the church, not just so that they would be separate from everyone else. Here you are, sinners, but with the hope that there would actually be restoration. So this is what Paul does right off the bat in verse two. He says this, that this guilty man needs to be absolutely removed from you. And this would be one of the beginning steps in what we would call church discipline. And that word gets a, a bad rap. The root of the word discipline is disciple, which actually means learner. So how is it that we learn to be a mature follower of Jesus Christ? How is it that we learn to properly repent of our sin? How is it that we learn to do anything for that matter? It always requires time and, and discipline. Before we start to think, we just need to love people more. One of the ways that we love people, we tell this to our kids all of the time, right? I don't want to do this, but because I love you, I am disciplining you. One of the ways that we love people is through discipline. Now, um, we're gonna be several passages on the screen, starting off with Galatians 6.1. Before we get offended, before we start thinking, well, that sounds crazy in the church, discipline, we shouldn't do that, we just need to love people more. Let's read through the Bible and see what the Bible has to say on a consistent basis all throughout scripture about God's discipline of his people. Starting in Galatians 6.1, it says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And he says, keep watch on yourself. Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted, by the way. In Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of the darkness, but instead expose them. Matthew 18, 15 to 17, it's not just Paul, this is Jesus speaking here. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You've, you've gained him back. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then if he refuses, in other words, if he continues to live an unrepentant life, just like that guy in 1 Corinthians 5, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and then be patient with them all. It requires patience. In Titus 
As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And if you get an opportunity, maybe this afternoon, write this down in your notes, Hebrews chapter 12. You read through the whole chapter of, whole chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, we see God's discipline. In Hebrews 12, 10, he talks about the discipline of a father. He says it was done for a short time. And then contrasting that to God and how God disciplines us, he says God the Father disciplines for our good. And so when it comes to discipline in the church, there are all sorts of different things involved. There is patience, there is warning, there's encouragement, there's gentleness, there's exposing. And at the very end, if there is still unrepentance, then there, there needs to be a time where there's separation. Separation with the ultimate hope that this person would be restored and that there would be repentance. A couple years ago, I had, a, the, I'll call it an opportunity, to go to a, a week of camp with students and we left on a Sunday and it was a full week, full week of camp. Left Sunday and we're, we're to come back on Friday and we leave, everything goes well, we get to the camp, everything's great, and Sunday happens, Monday, and then Tuesday. And if you've ever been to camp before, you've ever been to a full week of camp with students, you know, Tuesday, it's kind of like the breaking point, right? I mean, everyone, we, we get to Tuesday, and the adults know, if you can make it to Tuesday night at midnight, we can do this. And the kids are always like, yes, it's Tuesday, three more days, and the adults are like, it's Tuesday, Three more days, wow, this is it. And so here it was, it was Tuesday night, and I can remember uh, kind of going back to the dorm that evening, and we're about ready to go to sleep. And as we walked in, I heard something, I was like, that, that doesn't quite make sense. And it sounded like it was pitch dark in there, it sounded like someone was taking a pitcher of water and pouring it onto the concrete floor. Like, that's strange, what is that? And so got flashlights and went back. And whenever we went back in the back of the dorm, we saw one of our students that was just throwing up from the top bunk all over the floor. This is camp, right? This isn't uncommon. This is what happens. And so we took him to the nurse and we at least began the journey for him to get better. And we come back to the dorm. It's about an hour later. And as we're about ready to get into bed, I remember hearing these words. We have another one. And I'm like, we have another what? What is it that we have? And we go to the back, and there's another kid over the edge, throwing up. And it continued at midnight, at one o'clock, two o'clock, three, all night long. And then the next day, as, as this is all kind of unfolding and happening, toward, toward the end of the week, we kind of did the numbers. We had 300 people at this week of camp, and 100 had the stomach bug. So we're talking a third of the camp is is sick, and it's not, it's just a 24-hour bug, right? It's, it's not that one. That is, there is no, there is no good 24-hour bug here at camp anywhere. But this is it, it's just 24 hours and it's over, but it just overlapped day after day after day. And so we, kind of halfway through the week, we thought we've got to get a strategy with this. So we separated the kids. We separated all of the sick kids from all of the healthy kids. We started cleaning everything with sanitizer. We're getting all this set up, separating them, trying to keep the healthy well and the sick, kind of get them better. We did this in the church vans. We had a, a sick van. 
We had healthy vans. We're on the way home, and I, here I am. I nominated to drive the sick van, sort of holding my breath, and I'm driving this rolling ER down I-44 from camp to Stillwater. I think back on that story. Man, there was like nothing good about that week. I mean, it, up until Tuesday, it, it was great. But no one ever said to us, you know, that sounded kind of like a judgmental thing that you did when you separated all of the sick kids from the healthy kids. Wow, you should have just kind of kept everyone together, just love it. Like all of the good germs from all of the kids that were healthy is going to overflow on everyone and it's all going to get better. No, we knew that there was a serious problem and the way that this was going to get taken care of was we needed to separate the healthy from the sick, that the sick needed time to get better and the healthy did not need to be infected. And it is almost, it's just amazing how we know when it comes to just sickness like this, what do you do? There needs to be a definite separation. Yet whenever it comes to this very real spiritual infection of unrepentant sin that Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 5, we wanna live a totally different way. We just need to, we need to love each other. Let's keep everyone together. No matter if you love Jesus or you're completely rebelling against him and calling yourself a brother, we just all need to stay together. Somehow, all of us that love Jesus, that love will just overflow on everyone else and it'll just make sense. You know, they'll they'll come to repentance somehow. We know that that doesn't work. And what Paul instructs the church to do is something completely different than that. It's not about keeping everyone together. At some level, Paul says there has to be a separation. There needs to be a separation. And he gets even stronger. Look at verses four and five. He says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you need to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And some might think, Paul is, where does he get off saying this? How does he so confidently say these things? We need to hand him over. But let's think about this, where Paul refers back to, where he gets his authority, he says, ultimately is from the Lord. And it's by the spirit indwelling all believers, all of those people in the church that are a part of the body of Christ, this is where he gets his authority. This is where he gets his ultimate power. It is from God. And it's with that authority, Paul says, that you need to hand this unrepentant man over. As harsh as it sounds, you need to hand him over to destruction. What he's saying is you need to hand him over from all things good, from all things that are from the Lord, from all things that, that are holy and good and right. And you need to help him live his life with integrity, actually. By his actions, this is the way that he wants to live. He is pursuing sin and complete unrepentance. And he has to know and understand that you cannot have it both ways. And the good news, if you look at the end of verse five, it's not done done so that he could just be separated, that he could become different than everyone else and isolated. This is done so that he could come to repentance. Paul says, so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. And so when we discipline people in the church, when we tell one another the truth, those who are unrepentant, we do it with hope in mind. That they would experience the full weight of their sin, that they would experience life apart from God, and that they would find absolute folly in that. And that they would come back to a knowledge 
of the truth. And in so doing, that their flesh and their desire for sin, that it would be destroyed. You see the difference between the way that the world and the church, the way that we view discipline. The world wants discipline no matter what anyone says. It's not about just loving everyone. All all the world wants to know is to make sure that what Matt Lauer did is punished, that he needs to be disciplined. And does it? Yes. But really, for the rest of the world, it's like we'll take you and put you on the headlines for two days. And then after that, really, we just don't really have anything to do with you. And what Paul is proposing for the church is so much different than that. It's with the hope that the unrepentant can come to repentance. And so many of us have had some of these experiences, the hard, painful experience. Paul in verse two, he describes what the church is doing here, that it actually involves some mourning, that there is is pain involved in this, of telling people with love and with grace, and like Paul instructed earlier, with much patience, of telling people that with all of this in mind, that because of the way that you're going, because the direction you are headed, because the life that you are living is in complete rebellion against God and unrepentant sin, we want to let you know that you cannot call yourself a brother. You cannot be a part of this. And I tell you what, we love you, We desire you to come to repentance. We believe the grace of God is true and real and that you can come to a realization of this. That's what we pray for. But you can't have it both ways. And so that would be the answer to the first question. What does the church do? We separate when there is unrepentance. And the second question is this, is how do we know that sin rises to such a level that discipline on behalf of the church actually needs to take place? Surely we don't want to become judgmental. We don't want to be just looking over everyone's shoulders. I see that you're sinning. I've heard about this and we're chasing things. We don't want to be legalistic in this at all. So it's a very, very important question that we ask. And so kind of first of all, the sin has to be continual and unrepentant. And the second thing that Paul describes to us of how this would actually rise to such a level that discipline needs to take place is that it would pose a threat to the rest of the body, the rest of the church, the rest of the congregation. And he helps them understand this with a little bit of analogy. If you go back to verse six. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. And so now we get into all of these different things, leavened bread, unleavened bread, feasts, Passovers, all of these things that those in the first century might be familiar with and they seem to have quite a bit of distance for us. We need to understand exactly what is going on. But what the Jews celebrated once a year was the feast, what it was known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this goes way back into their history, back into the Exodus, when God, by keeping his promise, brought his people out of Egypt into the promised land. And all of this took place in such a fast manner that they didn't have the the time for their bread to rise. 
So once a year, as they came together, they would make this bread with unleavened, without yeast. And so they would go back to this time and they would connect it to God's faithfulness and how God had been faithful to their nation. And today we know that it is the yeast within, within the dough that actually causes the bread to rise. But that's not actually the word that's used here. It's, it's leavening. So what is the difference between yeast and leaven? Look, in, in their culture, yeast was actually hard to find. It wasn't that common, easy to obtain. And so what they did was, as they were making bread, they would take part of the dough and they would take a piece of the dough and they would hold it back. They would send that bread on then to be baked and they would hold back this piece of the dough and they would insert it into the, to the bread for the next week. And so this would act as yeast and it wasn't pure, but it worked. And so after it had that time to ferment for a period of a week, they would, they would put it in and that would cause the next uh, batch to rise again. And so they did this time and time again, week after week after week, it was added. Now, not only was the Feast of Unleavened Bread a time for them to go back and reflect on who God is, God's faithfulness to them as a nation was also given to them as somewhat of a health provision so that every year they would come back and as they came back, they would make this without the leavening in a more pure way. And so there wasn't this, this idea that they would be infected, that there was contamination that would spread. And I want you to keep this in mind. As Paul is telling this church what they're to do with this man and to think about what he had done and the power that it had within the church and this whole analogy that he is giving them, much like leavening, which comes in and has the power to, to, to like destruct and to spread and to over time really take things over in much the same way, what this man has done has the very same power. And so Paul instructs the church clearly that they need to cleanse themselves out of the old leaven because they have been made new. How do we know that what someone has done, how, how do we know when sin reaches such a level that it requires church discipline? It's gotta be unrepentant, but also it has the power to go into effect and infect the church. And he spends the rest of the chapter talking about how this applies specifically to the church. Not, not to the world, not to anyone in general, but we're talking about people that are claiming to be brothers, followers of Jesus Christ, committed to the Lord. This is who he's speaking to directly. If you look at verse nine, he says, I wrote to you a letter before not to associate with sexually immoral people. And he says, not talking about, not meaning the sexually immoral people of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. In other words, you couldn't go to Walmart with having to deal with these people. You, you, couldn't even, you couldn't even do that. We're not talking about the world in general. We're talking specifically about the church. Verse 11, he makes it very clear this is Christian brothers that he is talking about. And he says that it's the sexually immoral, but it's not just that. That's not just the one that we're gonna hang on to. He expands it even more in this list. Talks about the greedy, idolaters, revilers, drunkards, and swindlers. In verse 13, he said, God is the one that judges those, those outside. And then Paul instructs the church for the church to purge the evil, evil person from among you. And that's a big deal. And it's a big deal because of what Jesus Christ has done. 
because he is the one that has made us new, because he is the one that has made us right with God, because he is the one of making us this new separate community, followers of Jesus Christ, because he is the one that has the power to make us different It's important that we are separate, that we do have standards, and that we value this holiness. That's why it's important. I think if we go back, the whole chapter really centers in on on verse 7, where he says, Christ is our Passover lamb. As we eat the bread and we, we drank the cup, it's because of this, because what Jesus Christ has done fully for us on the cross, because he has made us separate, because he's made us new. This is why it's important. In the way that we cannot live in unrepentant sin, the reason why is because he's the one that's he's made us holy. This isn't simply who we are anymore. That's not our identity. And it begins with you. And it begins with me individually. I like this quote uh, by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, the practice of discipline in the congregation begins in the smallest circles. And many times we, we think it's, it's always just this big deal, but how does this, how does telling the truth to one another, discipline in a sense, begin with each one of us? I think it begins with individual families, that parents, as followers of Jesus Christ, can tell their children, look, if this is who you are, if this is who you claim to be, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot live this way. You cannot continue to walk this direction. You cannot live an unrepentant life. You can't have it both ways. So it starts in a family. It can start in a life group. Those people that we love, those people that we've entrusted our lives with, those people that we care for, we study the Bible together, we love one another, and we tell the truth to one another. And we feel open enough with one another to say, look, you are headed a certain direction, I see this, I don't see any repentance in your life, and because of that, I have to call you back. And if you're not gonna come back, if you're gonna continue to live this way, I have to let you know that there is going to be a point where we need to separate. And even relationships can change. And we do this with love, with grace, with patience. And the hard good news of 1 Corinthians chapter five is that because of Jesus, because of what he has done, we must separate ourselves from those claiming to be believers yet living a completely unrepentant life against God. That's the hard good news. But the good, good news of 1 Corinthians 5 is, if it's, if it's the one that has walked away, the one that's continued to live in unrepentance, there can be repentance. And that's what we pray for. And if, it's the one, if you're the one telling the truth, no matter, no matter which party you are in the situation, God's grace is true and real and the doors to the church, the doors to God are open. And it's our hope and our prayer that the unrepentant would come to repentance. And that's the good news of 1 Corinthians 5. And that is the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. God, um, oftentimes we read through um, sections of the Bible, 
especially chapters like this, and we think that just seems so distant from us. Like something like that could never happen, and yet we look around in the world and we see that things like this obviously do. God, I pray that you would uh, give us not a judgmental heart, but that you would give us patience and love and grace as we tell the truth, as we feel this calling by your spirit to when, when it is time to separate those who are repentant from those who are unrepentant and give us the wisdom and the grace to know. Give us the wisdom and the grace to know. God, we love you. And we thank you for the good news of 1 Corinthians 5 and ultimately the good news of your son. We love you in your name. Amen.